Advent is a season for looking forward, for longing. We look forward to the celebration of Christmas, but Christians also look forward to the time when Christ will return, when all things will be well. It's a time to hold in tension the way the world is, full of grief and sadness, and the promise of things to come. So Advent is a good season to explore 1 Peter 2 and 3. And I want to begin with a strange paradox. We need to hold two things side by side in order to understand the letter. On the one hand, 1 Peter describes the church as a special community called by God. Peter helps the church to see and understand in every generation who we really are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. We need to remember that afresh, especially in times of difficulty. It's strong and powerful teaching about the nature of the church. But on the other hand, God's kingdom has not yet come in all its fullness. We remember this especially in this season of Advent. We look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, the King, at Christmas. But we also remember that one day Christ will return at the end of the ages in power and glory and set all things to right. Now we live in the in-between times. We pray each day, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward and we long for that day. But we have to live as best we can in the here and now and with the perspective and hope and joy of eternity. To help us, Peter offers us a second set of images to set beside the first. Yes, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. But we are also, in this world and at this time, aliens and exiles. There are three references to this scattered through the letter. In one, in one, one, as we've seen, the epistle is addressed to the exiles of the dispersion. One seventeen refers to the time of your exile, and two eleven addresses us all as aliens and exiles. The word alien is, of course, used in the sense of strangers rather than visitors from a different planet. So, on the one hand, to be a Christian, part of the church is an immense privilege, a source of joy and hope and faith. We are part of one global family, extending through time and across the world, the church on earth and the church in heaven, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And on the other hand, to be a Christian is to be in Peter's day and in ours, part of a tiny, scattered community, living against the grain of their culture, often misunderstood, sometimes suffering for their faith, a stranger in a strange land. An early and well-known text from the second century, the letter to Diognetus, expands on this image. I quote, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland 
and every fatherland is foreign. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, indeed in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonoured, yet they are glorified in their dishonour. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. In a word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. For the first generation of Christians, there was no manual for how to live as aliens and exiles, but also as the chosen people of God. The apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write down the stories and the life and the message of Jesus, his death and resurrection, to guide the church in each generation. And they write letters to the young churches to remind them who they are and whose they are, and to offer guidance on how best to live in these uncertain times. The Gospels and the letters together form the New Testament, part of Holy Scripture. As we've seen, the church of Peter's day is fragile. Someone has calculated that by 100 AD, after this letter was written, there were probably no more than 7,500 Christians in the entire world, scattered right across the Roman Empire. So Peter is writing to tiny churches with few resources, facing a difficult future. It's vital that these new Christians understand who they are and how they should live out their faith in the face of opposition and rising persecution. So, in chapter 2, verse 11, there is a shift in the letter. We move from exploring the identity of the church to an exploration of how the church should live, from the discipline of ecclesiology, study of the church, to ethics, how we live. The early Christians are urged first to abstain from the desires of the flesh, and then, as a general heading, to conduct themselves honourably among the Gentiles. And Peter then explores what this might mean. The sections of the letter that follow need, I think, to be interpreted with great care. Many contemporary Christians find them challenging and difficult, including me. For the reader of 1 Peter, there are, as it were, three sets of rapids ahead on this river, and they all turn around the notion of obedience. The first rapids are around the idea of obedience to the state. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, that's in 2.13. Some kind of order is necessary in human affairs. No pattern of government is perfect. The church is not of this world, but must live in this world. And therefore our default setting, as it were, Peter says, is one of accepting that authority and obeying it. We need to remember in interpreting this verse for today, 
that the Church of Peter's day had no power or authority of its own. Obedience to the law where that was possible was necessary to survival. Even then it's not absolute. Christians were very soon to be martyred because they would not share in sacrifices to pagan idols or to the emperor. But apart from these questions of fundamental loyalty, the default expectation is obedience to the state and to the law. But as the church grows, so the church itself begins to exercise power and authority, and also has sufficient authority and power sometimes to challenge the state without disastrous consequences. When Christian history reaches that point, a more developed set of ethics will be needed. The church and individual Christians will need to draw in coming generations on other biblical traditions in speaking truth to power, and especially the tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophetic elements in Jesus' own ministry. There will need to be careful discernment about the role of protest and civil disobedience. In the last 100 years, Christians have faced questions about whether and when it's right to use violence to overthrow dictators, when it's right to demonstrate and use non-violent means of protest to win civil rights. There's a debate in some parts of the church today about the role of protest in the environmental movement. The church is going to need, in the centuries that follow this letter, to develop a more thorough critique of its own exercise of power in relation to the state than the verses simply presented in 1 Peter. These debates are still alive today. So these passages from this letter can only be seen as a beginning, a starting point in that fundamental and recurring question of how we live well as aliens and strangers in relation to the power of the state and in the perspective of our own exercise of power and authority. The second rapids are around the words addressed to slaves, again beginning with the question of obedience. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. It's clear from this letter and many others in the New Testament that slaves formed a significant part of the church in the ancient world. The church was inclusive and open to every section of society. Slavery as an institution is horrendous. The idea that human beings can own and exploit others, buy them and sell them, and expect unquestioning obedience. So in its context, no doubt, these words from 1 Peter would bring some comfort and guidance to those who were slaves in the Christian community, enabling them and many others who'd been oppressed and exploited to draw strength from the example of Christ where there is no escape and nothing to be done except endure injustice. This is a very hard and demanding way to live as an alien and exile. But this is also a passage which, with others, has been used by some Christians down the centuries to justify the institution of slavery and to justify not challenging or fighting against the status quo where there is an opportunity and capacity 
to do so. This is clearly a misuse of the scripture, and we need to be alert to that potential. The effects of the evils of slavery are still with us in many parts of the world. There is still horrendous people trafficking and many, many examples of modern slavery. It's important for the church today not simply to advocate compliance, but to do all we can to fight against this evil. We need to be clear as a church because of the dignity of every human person. We need to be clear and to be articulate on workers' rights to health care and unions and working conditions, particularly in the gig economy. It will be dreadful if texts such as this were ever used now to encourage a passive obedience and compliance in unjust situations as an alternative to action to improve people's lives. And the third set of rapids is around gender in 3.1. Wives in the same way accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Again, we need to reflect on the context here. There are many women in the early church, often in positions of leadership. See the final chapter of Romans, if you're in any doubt about that. But in society and in law in the ancient Roman world, women have very few rights. As advice to the scattered churches of Asia, to that particular context and to others in the ancient world, these verses would no doubt have brought some comfort and direction, particularly to women married to unbelieving husbands. But does that mean that they can be prescriptive for the church in every time and age? And does that mean they can be used to justify the oppression of women within marriage, within society and within the church? It does not. There is a larger truth here that women as well as men are heirs of the gracious gift of life, to quote 1 Peter 3.7. Women and men are of equal stature in Christ and in the life of the church. This is one of the revolutionary claims of the Christian church in contrast to much of classical society. This equality is present in the ministry of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the reasons so many women were attracted to Christ and to the Christian church. And for that reason, society and the church has, albeit far too slowly, recognised both the rights of women in society and the ministries of women in the church alongside men, a process which still has some way to go in many churches and in many parts of the world. Again, in these debates, as with the passages on slavery, so this part of 1 Peter has sometimes been wrongly used to justify the continued oppression of women. 1 Peter 2, 13-37 needs extremely careful interpretation, therefore. The verses are for us a timely reminder of the needs not simply to read the scriptures or to use them as proof texts, but for critical, careful, informed and loving interpretation of the scriptures, 
where they're deployed to shape lives and the way we live today. There are still many contemporary debates on the power of the state, on modern slavery and work, on gender, on marriage and human sexuality, where the Church needs to be very careful in our appeal to Scripture and in our interpretation of the text. But we emerge then from the rapids in 3.8 with a beautiful summary which has great power whatever the difficulties of the previous paragraphs. Peter is now addressing the whole church again, not simply groups within it. Finally, all of you have a unity of spirit, sympathy, a love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. I love that verse. Finally, all of you have a unity of spirit, sympathy, a love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind. These are the qualities of Christian holiness to which the letter has called us in 1.15. Christ is at the very centre of this letter, as we have seen, and these are the qualities of Christ, to draw all things together, to be compassionate to all, above all to love one another, to be gentle and to be humble. It is this character which is to be formed in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ in every generation, in every place. And this is ultimately how we test our interpretation of the Scriptures. Will one interpretation or another build up the unity, sympathy, love, gentleness and humility in the life of the Church? And it's this character which enables us to respond to suffering, even unjust suffering, with great love. Do not repay evil for evil, or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is this character of Christ in the Church, which, as we will see, is the only foundation for the spread of the Gospel from one person to another across the ancient world, and still across our world today. It's this character which is our focus in this Advent season, as we look forward to the light of this Christ entering our world at Christmas, and as we look forward to the reign of this Christ as King at the end of the ages. The Church is called to hold in tension these two great images and ideas. On the one hand, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. On the other we are aliens and exiles wrestling with how best to live in a world where we have no permanent home. Mon Peter sets us on the path of living as best we can according to the character of Christ. Finally, all of you have a unity of spirit, sympathy, a love for one another, a tender heart and a humble mind.